You're going to love this. Just love it. Stuck in the middle with you. This is the broadcast on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM San Diego, 95, 99.5 FM Ridgecrest and China Lake, and on K and on KAQ 91.7 on Oregon Central Coast. That's coast to coast and around the globe at kbfk.org. .org. .org. Yeah, that's right. And you can also hear us on the Stitcher app and the TuneIn app on your smart device. We're also on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn Radio and Netroots Radio. And you can hear us on Indie Media Weekly and now on iTunes. Now, you may be wondering, um, you're not Brad. Guess what? You're right. I'm not. <laughs> I'm Desi Doyen, uh, your friendly investigative journalist, blogger, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fella Brad from bradblog.com is on jury duty today. So I have been drafted into service as your friendly guest host. Again, I'm Desi Doyen, the producer of the Bradcast and Brad's co-host on the Green News Report, which you are going to hear later this hour. On today's show, we're going to be diving into all things water. Water is a huge issue out here in the arid West and, and in the world for that matter. And the state of California is scrambling to address it. We're going to be talking with water resource expert Matthew Heberger of the Pacific Institute on the big decisions ahead, not just for California, but for other states and for other nations who are all looking to ensure their water security in a climate-changed world. Also, we're going to be talking after that with the fight over fracking in Santa Barbara. It's Exxon versus the little guy, and we're going to be talking with the little guy. That's David Atkins, the campaign manager for Local Measure P. That's P for protection. Local measure P in Santa Barbara is intended to ban fracking, the controversial oil and gas drilling technique that studies are now showing can contaminate drinking water and even trigger earthquakes. A great idea for California. Plus, we're going to have today's Green News Report later on this hour, and we're talking about August 2014 being the hottest August on record globally and on the first town in the U.S. to go 100% renewable. And if we're really lucky, we'll have some breaking-ish news on the Mars rover with Margot Paez, our super-duper associate producer. But first, uh, just a little bit of uh, news items to get out of the way. Um, Brad may be on jury duty today, but 
right now he's going to be sitting in a courtroom. God knows who will see if they actually put him on a jury. But if you're in Los Angeles, you can still see him tonight after the 7.50 p.m. screening of a new fabulous documentary, Pay to Play, Democracy's High Stakes at Lemley's NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. Pay to Play is an ingenious, enlightening, funny, and frustrating portrait of our democracy after Citizens United and uh, what the hell we can do about it. Remember, that's tonight for folks in Los Angeles after the 7.50 p.m. showing at Lemley's NoHo 7 on Lancashire in North Hollywood. And that's now been extended through September 25th. For more info on screenings in California and around the country, go to paytoplay.tv. That's pay, the number two, play.tv. Also, real quick, before we get to uh, Matt Heberger, our next guest, Brad, um, we have an update on Brad's story on the wife-beating federal judge Mark Fuller. He's the federal judge in Alabama who was arrested for beating his wife in a hotel room in August. But he has received quite different treatment uh, than NFL player Ray Rice. For one thing, Judge Fuller still has his job. Now, we've been covering the Judge Fuller uh, wife-beating story at bradblog.com and on this show for weeks. And it looks like it is finally getting some traction in the mainstream media for First on Al Sharpton's show on MSNBC earlier this week, and then again on Chris Hayes' show on MSNBC last night, where he played the very disturbing 911 call from that incident. So you can head on over to bradblog.com for the latest um, updates on that story. And plus, this Sunday, just you know, to let you know, the People's Climate March is going to be this Sunday, September 21st in New York City. It's shaping up to be the largest march in history for action on climate change. And it's set to coincide with the U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon's big climate summit two days later. Now, if you can't make it to New York City, you can try one of the many satellite rallies around the country and around the world. You can find a local march near you at peoplesclimate.org. Now, before we get to our guest, Matt Heberger, I want to invite in our producer, our super super duper associate producer, Margot Paez, who's back from her long trips around the world studying like all things Mars rover and such. Hi, Desi. How's it going? That's pretty good. It's gl- I'm really glad to be back. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. It's great to have you on the air. And well, thank, thank you. you for having me. Well, yeah, we're going to get some time to actually talk about the Mars rover later on this afternoon. I mean, later on in this show, um, we're going to make sure we, we have time for that. But first, now we are going to move on to all things water. Now, the state of California is in its third year of historic drought. And this year is shaping up to be California's driest on record. This drought is so severe. It finally forced state lawmakers to break through decades of opposition to finally pass a bucket full of new state water legislation. And that includes the state's first ever rules regulating groundwater. That's right. California, infamous for its droughts, has never managed to manage its groundwater. It's the last western state to do so. Landowners have been able to pump as much water from the ground as they want, but this drought has meant that the aquifers of California are draining rapidly faster than they can be charged naturally. And it's also impacting California's billion-dollar agriculture industry. And it's not just here in California. This is also happening in every state and in every country around the world as we're sort of coming to acknowledge and understand that we're going to have some issues with water availability in a climate-changed world. And is it worth it to spend billions of dollars on new infrastructure? Because, you know, is a dam worth a dam? If the rains don't come, 
<laughs> See? Uh, that's so a good one. the choices that we make today <laughs> are going to set the course for decades to come. Now, here to talk with us about all of these things is water expert Matt Heberger. He's a water resources engineer and a staff research associate with the Pacific Institute's Water Program, the nonprofit Pacific Institute for Studies and Development, Environment, and Security in Oakland, California. It's a nonprofit that provides independent research and policy analysis and solutions. You can find them at PACInstitute.org. Welcome, Matt. Hi, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> thanks so much, Matt. It's uh, Desi and Margot here with you. First off, I, I just wanted to um, get a, sort of an overview uh, from you about the, the new groundwater legislation that Governor Brown just signed, uh, I think it was yesterday, on the mm-hmm. new bills that are going to impact California's water for decades and these groundwater rules. Now, why, why was this so important? Well, without a doubt, it's, it's a really historic piece of legislation. Um, there was really, California was the last state in the country that was not regulating groundwater use. Not even just the last Western state, but the last state? Really, out of 50, we were wow. the last one. And so that's, that's changed as of yesterday. The governor did sign, that's a big deal. sign the bill, so it's, it's going to be law. And uh, what it said, the way things used to be was that if, if you owned property and you had a pump, you could pump pretty much as much as you wanted, as long as you were putting that water to beneficial use. So you were using it for irrigation or watering your livestock or, right. for, your, or your home or your business. Um, and so you could also call it uh, the law of the biggest pump. Whoever has the biggest pump wins. Or the deepest straw, I suppose. Sure. Yeah, I mean, groundwater is a classic common pool resource. And if, if you're familiar with the phrase tragedy of the commons, yeah. you've got people racing to use the resource and, and profit from it, benefit from it, and that can result in overuse. And so you've had a lot of situations all across the country, in the West, in the arid West, and in California, where the overuse was so much, there was so much overpumping, that it really came to a crisis situation, and then it would lead to all sorts of lawsuits. And so we have in California a handful of places where, where there is groundwater regulation because there was a lawsuit and a judge came in and appointed a, a water master. And so you have a situation where you've got counties or special districts that are managing groundwater but aside from a handful of these, we call them adjudicated basins uh, around the state in most areas, um, you could pump, pump as much as you wanted. And it was leading to all kinds of adverse impacts. Well, yeah, like, like, like I have read that in some areas of the Central Valley where the aquifers have been depleted so quickly that the ground has, has just subsided like, like 60 feet or more. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you can go online. If you Google the word subsidence, there's a really famous Photo, photograph from the San Joaquin Valley. I think it was taken in the 1970s. And it shows you how much the the land subsided between the 1930s and the 1970s. Yeah, and that was so, that the one of the farmer standing next to the telephone pole where he has a exactly. mark where he used to stand and now a mark where he is now, and he's at the bottom of this. Uh, it's it's really yeah, so, remarkable. Mm-hmm. And the that, all, that telephone pole is the amount that the land actually sunk in those 40 years. Wow. So the 1930s, that corresponds to when we had rural electricity and these new pumps that could reach deeper deeper into the ground. And you you had a massive expansion of of irrigation using groundwater. Now, of course, the agriculture industry is very big in California. You know, California is like, what is it, half, a third or a half of the nation's fruits and vegetables. And of course, it's a major exporter as well of fruits Mm -hmm. and vegetables and almonds and nuts. And these are all very uh, important crops that make a lot of money, but, you know, a lot of them don't seem like they're really necessarily appropriate for an area that is as water-challenged as 
California. Is that the case? Well, I mean, it depends on how you define appropriate. You've got a lot of really fertile soils in the Central Valley and just add water. The but if you don't the have the water, this should, you know, is there is there any provision coming up in these bills that that, you know, how how is it going to be regulated? What is the what's the mechanism or the mechanisms that the state is going to put into place to to sort of help regulate these things? Is it just going to be big old government telling in it coming in and telling you you can't do that? No, I, I think California, it, in terms of groundwater, adopted a relatively laissez-faire approach in that it, instead of having the state regulate everything from Sacramento and, and having a sort of water czar tell you how much water you get to use, is that it's going to be up to local governments and local groundwater management districts to allocate the water as they see fit and to try to bring water use in line with what is sustainable. And so sustainable can mean a lot of different things, but for a lot of areas, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mean there's going to be caps and limits on how much you can pump in the future. Now, there were also a lot of opponents to this in, uh, in the Central Valley and, uh, aquacul- and, and agriculture interests in the uh, Central Valley and up near Sacramento. Um, what, were the nature, what was the nature of their opposition? Because they seemed to be really against this, uh, what, this historic groundwater legislation. Yeah, I think the... Uh, the the opposition was fairly predictable. I think any time you're infringing on something people see as a private property right, <laughs> there's going to be yeah. opposition to it. But the experience has been in other regions uh, where some kind of more orderly system for exploiting the resource and using it is that people who were the earliest opponents end up becoming the most in favor of it later on because you have a more orderly use of the resource and you're not going to have this race to the bottom anymore, whoever's got the biggest pump. You, you, we're currently pumping groundwater so fast that in places the, the water table has declined by 300 feet in the last few wow. years. It's, it's just clearly unsustainable, and it, it couldn't go on. And this is something, it's going to hurt everyone. It's going to hurt from almond farmers all the way to you know, people who own homes and have a domestic well for their own you know, water supply for their household. Let me ask you a question. This is Margo. Hi. And what about in terms of the entire nation? Is this going to affect the entire nation, what happens here in California? Boy, I think that remains to be seen. I, I think that ultimately this should have a, a good impact on um, you know, people, whether they're growing food or anything like that. Right now, a lot of uh, irrigators, in, especially in the, the southern Central Valley and the San Joaquin Valley, they use surface water when they can because it's less expensive and when it's available, and they'll turn to groundwater during drought years. And, you know, we don't know what the future is going to hold, but the climate scientists are telling us that we can expect more and longer droughts as climate change continues to happen. Right. Yeah, and so I think anything that puts us on a more sustainable path is ultimately going to be it's going to be good for everyone. Well, now, there are a lot of, uh, of uh, billion-dollar projects that are also being proposed for California. And mm-hmm. I also, like, like Margaret said, I want to bring this out to a broader national uh, focus as well. You know, for example, here in California in November, voters are going to vote on whether or not to spend $7 billion on a new water bond for mm-hmm. infrastructure, like for dams and reservoirs, and mm-hmm. uh, a new, massive new project called uh, the Delta Tunnels Project, you know, these two 
like massive 40 foot wide tunnels that are supposed to siphon off billions of gallons of water from upriver of Sacramento and just take that water out of the Sacramento River, take it away from the Sacramento Delta, which is like, I think, isn't that the largest freshwater estuary in the States? We're close to it, the Sacramento uh, yeah, Delta? The, the San Francisco Bay and, and the Delta, are, it's the, the largest estuary on the west coast of the Americas. Well, yeah. see, that's a that's pretty big. So it's going to take yeah. all that water away, and that's going to cost billions and billions of dollars. And I've been wanting to ask, this Delta Tunnels project, is it is it a good idea, this big infrastructure issue that we have? Well, I think you brought up two separate but related issues. One, okay. one is the, the water bond and in my reading of it, the, the bond doesn't include any funding explicitly for the Delta Tunnels. Right. Uh, it does include almost $3 billion for storage projects. And so there's a couple of, of dams that the state has their eye on that they've been thinking about for a long time, um, and some recycled water projects, desalination, a whole host of, of different things. Um, Actually, the the price tags that I've seen for the the Delta tunnels are going to cost a lot more than seven billion. So the seven billion water bond is going to be for other storage and other reservoirs and and some issues. Does it also include anything for water efficiency? It does. It includes some money, a few hundred million actually, for water efficiency projects in both cities and in agriculture, which is I think especially important. And it also includes the money for. Um, ecological restoration and maintaining in-stream flows. So it, it's kind of a grab bag catch-all. Um, there, there's definitely some pet projects that, oh, really? that are in there. Sure. Well, I mentioned these two. They're not called out in the bill by name, but there, there's two dam projects, the Temperance Flats and Sites Reservoir, that um, have been sort of on the wish list of the agricultural community for, for many years. Um, and so that, that looks like that's where part of the money is going to go. And also... I think more important than that is um, if we're looking at how we can spend our money effectively and efficiently to, Always a plus. to create more water supply, we should be looking past surface storage. Uh, California hasn't built a new surface water dam in 35 years. Why? And, uh, there's a re- well, partly all the good sites are already taken. Really? Okay. And another reason is that the federal funding is dried up, and also our values as a society have really changed. We we value free flowing rivers and and salmon and fish and all these sorts of things that that rivers can bring us. Okay. So and, then, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No. Well, I mean, so I think that's the reason we haven't built um, a, a, a big surface uh, dam in many years. And there's a lot there's a lot of projects we could spend that money on that would be much more efficient and effective. We just published in June um, a set of fact sheets uh, called Untapped Savings, and we identified four areas that could bring us millions of acre feet of new water supply at a fraction of the cost of building dams. And that, that was, is at the Institute.org website? Absolutely. People, we co-published that with uh, the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, and so you can find it either on our website, packins.org, or on NRDC's website as well. Okay, and so we looked at oh. agricultural efficiency, okay. um, increasing efficiency in our cities and suburbs, um, capturing stormwater and infiltrating it into the ground so that we can use it for water supply in the future, and then um, also reusing uh, water. Right now, most of the, the water that we use in cities gets treated in wastewater plants, and then it's discharged, oftentimes out into the ocean where we can't use it again. Oh. Uh, instead, we can treat that to a really high level, which is happening all over the world, and uh, we could reuse, we could directly reuse that water, or we could put it in lakes and rivers and reuse it later on. 
Okay, so when when we're looking at you know these these big storage projects, you know for mm-hmm. surface water, you know if surface water you know isn't going to be where the action is coming up, then is it you know I know that that dams have uh, big dams and big reservoirs have have a lot of environmental issues that they bring with them. So they they have a, a great thing on one side, the pro being that they that they collect water for times of need. Um, the other thing is that they also have major impact. You know, is do and we're in the middle of dismantling dams on the West Coast. Like, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, river restoration. I, I think it was the San Joaquin River that had the dam taken away and is now uh, in the middle of a million-dollar res- res- restoration, right? Well, yeah, they're releasing more water uh, for the river and not just for, for irrigation. It's on, on the Klamath River, which is a pretty famous case right now, where they're looking into removing some dams. But, but you're right. In this country, we're removing dams at a faster pace than we're building them. Why are we doing that? Well, I think a lot of these dams have outlived their useful life, and, and a, lot of, a lot of them, the, the costs exceed the benefits, and we'll get more benefit from having a free-flowing river mm. for fisheries and for recreation than we do from, from having that uh, outmoded dam there. Well, see, and that makes a lot of sense to me that we have, you know, issues with, uh, uh, you know, like I think I've been following the Elwa River Dam that in Washington State that mm-hmm. has been dismantled completely. And, and this week they said for the first time salmon are beginning to run that river again and restore what used to be uh, one of, a really prolific salmon, river, salmon run, you know, with millions or thousands of fish. I mean, a lot of fish, basically. And that that is something that seems to me a little schizophrenic. You know, on the one hand, we're, we're dismantling dams in the West, and then on the other hand, we're building new dams. To me, when I look at, you know, across the country, uh, you know, we've got water wars going on between uh, lawsuits going on between Georgia and Florida, a very famous uh, water disagreement between those two states. Also, Texas is suing New Mexico, and New Mexico is suing Texas over the water that they're trying to get there, too. Um, You know, we also have between Kansas and Colorado. Last time I I drove through uh, Kansas and Colorado, I stopped at this place that was right on the border uh, between Kansas and Colorado, a little tiny town, um, Lyman, Colorado, I think it was. And the people there were telling me that, hey, Kansas wants to build a pipeline from one of our north Colorado lakes. They want to build a straw that takes our lake water and drives it straight to Kansas, and we won't get any of it. And they were livid about this. You know, it seems like we're seeing more of this. Is that is that the case? Boy, you know, we've been tracking water conflicts for years. and In fact, we have a, the water conflict chronology on our website. Um, I don't know that I could say that the conflicts are necessarily increasing, um, but maybe we just hear more about them. I mean, water is also uh, an area where there's been tremendous cooperation, even between sworn enemies over the years. But, you know, it's as likely to cause conflict in other places. But, uh, you know, getting back to the dam issue, I just was going to say that, in, in, in my view, I think it makes a lot more sense to invest in efficiency and also to invest in groundwater banking rather than, um, you know, building dams. It's not really clear that it's ever going to even refill. What, what would you call groundwater banking? What does that well, mean? Well, that would be actually where you infiltrate water into the ground and you store it underground in aquifers. You inject and, it? And, and you, you can use injection wells or you can simply spread it on the ground and let it infiltrate down. And this is something that's already happening in places around, around the country and around California. There's a huge amount of potential in uh, the San Joaquin Valley and Kern County in particular. Well, where would that water come from then if you're going to re-inject it? And Margaret's like, yeah, like, I mean, where is <laughs> yeah, it supposed to be? If question. it's not going to rain, where are we going to get it? Yeah. Well, that's the eternal question. I, I mean, the fact is, 
most of the rain that comes in California is in the north, and then most of the people are in the south, and, and that's not going to change anytime soon. And so we'd still be looking at transporting water uh, you know, from the Sierra Nevada mountains and from the north down to the, the more arid areas. But it, it makes more sense in a time of surplus to bank this water underground where you're not going to be losing it to evaporation or any other, any other uh, losses. And then you can use it during, during times of drought. It's just another way of drought-proofing and making your water system more resilient. Okay, and so, it comes at a okay. much lower environmental cost than, than some of these dams and, ah. and, and a much lower financial cost. And it seems like it would be much less environmentally destructive to the ecology of an area where a dam is being built to just, you know, put it back inside the aquifer where it was supposed to be in the first place, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, right. So so one of the other things that I was talking about with a friend of mine is like, well, hey, Seattle's got all that rain and all that water. Alaska's got a lot of water. Why don't we just build <laughs> some water pipelines instead of all these oil pipelines that people keep fighting over? Is that even a feasible idea? Uh, people have been talking about that for decades. There, there's an old project that was that's called NAWAPA, the, the North American Water and Power Agreement. And it's one of these things where, you know, when engineers sit down with a pencil and a map, <laughs> you yeah. get a little overexcited. And, <laughs> yeah, um, so, yeah, there, there have been ideas like that. for you. Until water is worth, you know, over $100 a barrel, like oil, it, it, there's no way it would ever it make It just is sense. not profitable, I guess, to uh, <laughs> to do that. Then. And it seems like we, you know, we, we do tend to waste water because water is artificially cheap. And I have seen people say, hey, listen, you know, privatization of water is a huge sticky issue that, that really does bring into a lot of questions, especially as it's been deployed in, in other countries like Bolivia, where, you mm-hmm. know, private water companies have, have actually not followed through on their promises to keep water infrastructure They've they've you know skyrocketed prices without delivering more water to the poor people, especially who need it. But it does seem like we need to have some kind of policy that puts a a, a better value on water. At least, is there, you know, are there any recommendations or policies that that seem to be working in that direction? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's something we talk about a lot here: is using smart economics and good water pricing to to make water consumption more sustainable. Yeah, the truth is, for most of us, water is fairly cheap, um, and and so when water is wasted or used, you know, in excess, it's not a surprise. And so I think in the future, a lot of us are going to be paying a lot more for water, and a lot of water utilities, they're 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 starting to do more to try to use price as a signal to encourage conservation. So you have things like tiered rate structures, where you get a certain amount of water for a low price, but then once you start using uh, more water, then you'll end up getting so, charged. So everybody more. gets like a certain amount, and then any overage is, is charged at a price high enough to hurt a little bit, so that you don't waste it. Yeah, yeah, and that's becoming more common. Uh, you know, I think in most places that they're doing it, their their tiers are probably not steep enough, so they're not charging. You know, they're real water hogs. They're just not charging them enough to really make it hurt in a lot of places. I see. But, okay. but you can find you can find examples where where you do you have people that are having water bills in the thousands of dollars. for filling pools and for irrigating big landscapes. We have a lot of really, when it comes to especially outdoor water use, a lot of... Really stupid use, it sounds like. Water use that doesn't make sense. (laughs) 
you know, we're the golden state for a reason. It's We're not meant to have green lawns all summer. <laughs> Aha. Well, okay, so I have one in the time we have left. Uh, I, I really want to just sort of get an overview of desalination. I get a lot of questions uh, in the Green News Report, you know, and when we talk to people about these water issues, they all want to know, why don't we just build more desalination plants? We've got a big old ocean right there. You know, why can't everybody have a desalination plant? What are the, the pros and cons of desalination, and why hasn't it taken off? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I know. I a quick it, overview. I know we could talk for hours about this. Well, yeah, internationally, uh, there are hundreds of desalination plants in water-scarce countries. If you look across the Middle East, where energy is cheap and water is really scarce, they're, they're doing a lot of desalination. It hasn't really taken off in this country. You're right, and I, that's simply, I think, because of the cost and the environmental impact of doing desalination is that it's much more expensive than almost all the other options in our water supply portfolio, whether that's efficiency, reuse, stormwater capture. There's just cheaper opportunities that, that are out there. And now, that, that said, you know, San Diego is in the middle of a, a construction project to build a desalination plant that's going to provide 50 million gallons per day. Which that's isn't a, enough for San Diego's entire no, water just use. Be, it's just going to be a part of their water supply, a part of their portfolio. But I mean, desalinated water is the holy grail for water suppliers. It's you know the oceans are practically infinite for for our purposes. Now, but there are but there are issues though. What the, the cons of desalination uh, in the time we have left? Uh, you know, because I know that it does have environmental impacts, as pretty much everything we do as humans. But you know, what are the environmental impacts that have to be dealt with? Well, there's obviously some impacts on the coast where you build the plant and you're discharging the, the brines after you treat the water. But I, I think bigger than that issue is is just the, the amount of energy that it requires. It requires a huge amount of energy to take all that salt out of the water. And with the energy use, there's the huge expense and, and then also the emissions that are associated with that energy use. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Matt Heberger. Uh, it's of the Pacific Institute, um, who water resources engineer, who uh, is talking about all things water with us and water policy and new California groundwater rules and other rules that are trying to bring California more in line with its actual water supply, especially in a climate changed world. Um, you can find Matt at the pack at packinstitute.org. It's a uh, packinst.org. Oh, packinst. Yep, P-A-C-I-N-S-T. Mm-hmm. Packinst.org. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. Take- All day I face the barren waste Without the taste of water speaking with Matt Heberger of the PacificInstitute.org on all things water. Wait, say that again, Margo? I said you're making me thirsty with all this water talk. <laughs> I, I have to pull up my bottle of water I know, here just to have sip. a sip because, and of course it's hot here too, so it's we are in the middle hot. of a record heat wave. Um, but my thanks to Matt Heberger for coming on and sort of giving us an overview of what's going on in California and the country and internationally in trying to deal with water issues. Uh, coming up next, we will be speaking with David Atkins, campaign manager for Measure P, that's Measure P for protection, I'm deciding to call it. <laughs> 
up in Santa Barbara about fracking. And, you know, fracking has huge issues with water use. It uses millions of gallons per water. water. Yeah, and it seems like a kind of a crazy idea. Perfect for California, don't you think? (laughs) What's what's not to like? (laughs) Um, Anyway, this is Desi in for Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Brad is on jury duty today. Uh, We'll be back with David Atkins right after this. Stay with us. Dan, can you see that big green tree where the water's running free and it's waiting there for you and me? Yep, it's money that matters in the USA. Desi Doyen here filling in for Brad Friedman on the Bradcast on KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM San Diego, 99.5 FM Ridgecrest and China Lake. Yes, I can say that. And coast to coast and around the globe at kpfk.org. Brad's on jury duty today, so it's me, Desi, producer of the Bradcast and co-host on the Green News Report coming up later this hour. Also sitting here with me is Margot Paez, our super duper associate producer, fresh on leave from JPL, where she has ditched us to go be an <laughs> astrophysicist. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah, the yeah. glamour of science over oh, radio. <laughs> I know, it's very radio. I had to talk about what you're working on Same later. dress code, though. I like that. I like that kind of uh, dress code. Um, (laughs) Let's see. In a moment, we're going to get to David Atkins and talk about fracking up in Santa Barbara. But first, I just want to remind folks in Los Angeles that can see Brad tonight at a screening of the after the screening of the new documentary Pay to Play, Democracy's High Stakes. It's going to be after the 7.50 p.m. screening at Lemley's NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. Brad's in the film. Yeah, come see it anyway. It's still good. It's enlightening. It's funny. It's fascinating. And it talks about what the hell we can do about the changes to our campaign finance system and, oh, goodness, our election system here in the United States. That's uh, tonight after the 7.50 showing, Lemley's No Hose 7 on Lancashire in North Hollywood. Now we are going to turn to the fight over fracking in Santa Barbara. Now, remember, back in 1969, a blowout at an oil platform just offshore of Santa Barbara dumped millions of crude oil on its beautiful beaches. Now, at the time, that was the largest offshore oil spill in the nation's history. It still ranks as third. It was that big. Now it's third after the BP oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico and the Exxon Valdez, because obviously we don't learn anything in this country. The Santa Barbara spill is also credited with uh, galvanizing the American environmental movement, spurring Republican President Richard Nixon to create the Environmental Protection Agency. And it also helped slow down a lot of oil and gas development in California for more than a generation. Now we go fast forward to today. And again, we're in the middle of a record drought. 
But California is also sitting on a lot of unconventional oil and gas deposits called the Monterey Shale. It extends hundreds of square miles, but it's really difficult to get at. The industry really, really, really wants to get at that, and they're going to want to use the issue, the uh, the dr- controversial drilling technique of fracking, which again we said earlier that uses millions of gallons of fresh water per well, which just seems kind of not smart in a state like California. Um, But folks in Santa Barbara are saying, not so fast. This is going to be ExxonMobil versus the little guy. And here to tell us how they're going to defeat Exxon is David Atkins. He's a talented blogger, one of my favorites over at Digby's Hullabaloo. He's also chairman of the Ventura Ventura County Dems, and he's now the campaign manager for Measure P, which I'm saying P as in protection. It's a local measure on the November ballot to limit fracking in Santa Barbara. Welcome, David. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you. I'm so glad you could be here, too, because I really wanted to talk with you about this because, you know, a lot of people nationwide are talking about fracking and trying to control it locally, trying to control it nationally, trying to get some, you know, some measures in place or to stop it entirely, if at all possible. You know, new studies are showing that that it can contaminate the, the processes of fracking can contaminate groundwater. They can also induce earthquakes. I mean, this seems kind of kind of an interesting choice for California. Yeah, it's a terrible choice. For <laughs> um, and uh, it's not just it's also acidizing and cyclic steam injection. So they dump hydrofluoric acid down and uh, steam at very, very high pressure and using, of course, as you said, millions of gallons of, of water. In Santa Barbara County, they're planning to drill 7,700 new wells, which would use... Wait, 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 wait. Say that again. How many? 7,700 new wells is uh, what one energy company is planning to do using um, a variety of these three techniques, fracking, acidizing, and cyclic steam. Wow, that, that, that's a lot of wells for Santa Barbara County alone. Yeah, it's billions of gallons of water, and it is huge amounts of uh, carbon emissions. In fact, just to drill the wells alone, to say nothing of the oil that comes out of them, it's a million cars a year worth of carbon emissions. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so so then with, with Measure P, now, now just sort of give us the overview. I know that you have been working on statewide fracking issues. Tell me, tell me how that all came about, how this all has come about. Give, sort of walk us through that, if you would. Right. So... Uh, Activists have been trying to push for a fracking ban, a fracking moratorium, rather, that uh, it went statewide. We haven't been able to succeed in doing that in California. We came, we came up to being able to implement some regulations, a bill called SB4, okay. but we were not able to pass a complete moratorium. So in the absence of a moratorium, a few counties and communities have decided that they were going, activists in them have decided that they were going to take matters into their own hands and pass bans at a local level in their counties. Uh, By far the most populous county to do that is Santa Barbara County. And, of course, the oil companies realize that if they fail to defeat a fracking ban in Santa Barbara County, that that will generate, and elsewhere counties too, but especially in Santa Barbara County, that will generate momentum toward a fracking ban statewide and more fracking bans nationally. Uh, however, if they can kill it here, if they can defeat a fracking ban in Santa Barbara County, then it makes it much harder for a statewide leg- for statewide legislators to say, "Oh, we should do it for the entire state." So they're trying to sort of kill it in the crib here. Ah, I see. So, so now when I was reading your article, and you know, I want to point everybody over to uh, Digby's Hullabaloo. Um, and does she have hullabaloo.com now, or Digby's Hullabaloo.com? What's the exact website address of her? It's 
digbeesblog.blogspot.com. Okay, so anyway, I always just Google Digbees Hullabaloo because I can never remember her exact address. And you have this this great article over at Digbees called You Haven't Seen Me in a While, Here's Why. And you kind of go through um, a lot of the issues and the pressures and the, the, the opposition, the very well-funded opposition that is uh, trying to stop this local control of what happens to people who live in a specific area. I mean, the idea that, you know, that we could have Democratic voters who get together and say, you know, yeah, sorry, guys, we really don't want this in our area. But you've got some, some pretty heavy-hitting opposition that you're up against, right? Right. So Chevron dumped in $1.4 million. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, $1.4 million to million. a local county measure? To a local county measure. And it doesn't even do that much. It's not like it, I, mean, I shouldn't say it doesn't do that much. It doesn't kill all conventional drilling, right? Oh, is that what they're it arguing? Is that it's going to stop everything? Correct. They're arguing that it stops everything, and it does not stop everything. It stops only fjordals that use these three specific techniques. Uh, but they're freaked out enough by it because it has implications for the statewide moratorium that they are spending $1.4 million, just Chevron, and then other companies have funded uh, in money of, of their own. Uh, by the time it's all done, it'll probably be over $2 million to a local countywide initiative. Of course, our side doesn't have anything like that kind of money. Uh, so they're, con- they're just swarming the TV and the mailboxes and, and everything else, paid social media. They're, it's, it's a a huge wealth campaign that the Orphanies are running full of lies and deceptions. Oh, wow. And and so how are you guys doing? Uh, what what are you doing and to try to uh, counter this? Uh, I mean, I think you wrote in your article that you're being outspent like 20 to 1 by big oil for this. Correct. It's a, They're going to end up outspending us 20 to 1 by the time it's all over. Ugh, uh, wow. We have, so the nice thing is they have all the money. We have people power. We have real people by our side. So we've made over 100,000 phone calls. We've walked uh, and knocked on over 1,000 doors. Uh, we have our smaller uh, mail program, but because we're not paying high-priced uh, consultants with, with commissions, uh, we get a lot more bang for our buck. But obviously, we have to stretch every single cent, and there are certain things that we simply cannot do because we lack the resources to do them. Uh, so, uh, you know, more, more funding would be great. Uh, but we're we're making our dollars go as far as we can and utilizing uh, the power of actual people who care about their communities instead of big oil money. So you could say Measure P could also stand for people, <laughs> in a yes. way. Yes. Well, you know, because protect our water, protect our people. That's right. Exactly. You know, we're, we're, again, we're speaking with David Atkins. He is a blogger and uh, Democratic County. Well, would you be Ventura County Dems? That's what you are, the chairman. Correct. Okay, and uh, and also the campaign manager. He's the campaign manager for Measure P for protection, protecting our people, et cetera, in Santa Barbara County to limit uh, fracking. And I had a question for you. Um, you know, you know, uh, because you're a great environmental blogger, by the way, I, I highly recommend checking out, checking out all of David's work online. But um, – you know how in other in other states, like specifically in California, California, specifically in Colorado, there are a, a lot of local measures uh, in in various towns in Colorado trying to get on the ballot to either get a moratorium or a ban or limitations on fracking. Um, and in Longmont, Colorado, specifically, the governor of the state 
actually is suing Longmont because they passed a ban in, within their city limits. And now the governor is suing them, saying, you know, your measure violates state law that gives mineral rights owners the right to extract what's underneath your feet. So is that something, you know, where you is that going to be a factor here for you in California if this measure P should pass? No, the legal environment in Colorado is uh, different than the uh, legal environment in California on that ground. Also, uh, the political environment is different as well. Jerry Brown would would not take any act like that, even if the legal environment were different. Uh, but no, the claim that the oil companies are making is about uh, local issues uh, with regard to their their vested rights. But our measure is written very, very specifically to avoid a lot of these issues because any anyone with the right who is already drilling a well, even using these techniques, can continue to drill their current well using their these techniques. It only bans any future wells that would be drilled using fracking, acidizing, or steam injection. So we're on very solid legal ground. The oil companies are claiming that the county will be subject to lawsuits, but it's not true. We're, we, we've done our homework. Okay, so what happens if the oil companies get their way and these almost 8,000 wells are built? What what will be the consequences for the people of Santa Barbara or anybody else in the state? Well, there will be obviously there will be local issues uh, for the issue of climate change. It's absolutely horrific. Uh, you're talking about major carbon emissions, uh, millions of cars uh, worth of emissions just to drill the wells. To say nothing of the dirty oil they're extracting out of them, uh, you have risks of water contamination. You have risks of cancer and other diseases. You have risks of increased earthquakes. It's uh, it's very terrible at the local level. At the state and national level, what the other side will do is they will go to wavering legislators in less liberal areas like the Valley uh, and other places. And they, you know what? They couldn't even pass, even in liberal Santa Barbara, they couldn't pass a fracking ban. You shouldn't vote for a fracking ban across the state of California. So a loss here would set us back uh, on on pat, on implementing bans on these practices at a statewide level, uh, potentially for years. So the stakes are very high. Wow. Okay. So David, um, where can people get more information on Measure P in Santa Barbara? Our website is voteyesonp.org. Again, that's voteyesonp.org. The letter P. Yes, that's right. The letter <laughs> P. So yes, vote yes on letter P. Uh, .org. And uh, we have a remote phone banking. Uh, you, can, you can call voters here. Uh, and obviously, we're, we're desperately in need of, of funds if you can uh, see fit to donate. Okay. Thank you so much for your time, David Atkins, again, campaign manager for Measure P to limit fracking in the county of Santa Barbara, which, you know, has a national, statewide and national implications for the fight for people to control what goes on in their own area. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. Okay, so maybe I'll melt with Margot instead. Brad's not here. Brad's on jury duty. But we're still going to play our latest green news report. Some really interesting, um, not so great news, but some great news, too. So hang on. Ready, G? We're going to go ahead and hit the green news report. It has not been this hot in California in 120 years. Baby, it's hot outside. Hottest year on record in California. Hottest August for the entire planet. This was a direct hit by a powerful Category 3 hurricane. Record hurricane hits Cabo San Lucas. Plus, 
Burlington, Vermont, now 100% renewable. Way to go, Burlington. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I'm no scientist, but I have never bought into all the alarmism around climate change. Why fear change? Maybe Earth is just going through puberty. Well, that would explain it. This is your Green News Report. Our glaciers are dropping, jungle is cropping up in strange places, and sometimes we wake up and find our streets all wet. It's natural. Okay, Desi Doyen, perhaps we should explain to listeners before we begin that if we are sloggier today than usual, <laughs> it is only because we are in the middle of this unending heat wave out here in California. It's a record heat wave, in fact. I also want to note that I have been whining, yes, I will say it, whining all <laughs> year long about how warm it has been in California, in the middle of the worst drought ever, but we never had a winter, and it seems as if last summer really never ended. And now, there is science to back me up. Yes, science does back you up. 2013 was the hottest year on record in California, but it looks like it's going to be surpassed by 2014. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has announced that California is officially now in its hottest year on record to date. January through August of this year, clocking in at one full degree warmer than the previous record set in 1934, according to NOAA scientist Jake Crouch on KPCC. California beat the previous record by more than one degree. Uh, that might not sound like a lot, but when we usually talk about year-over-year temperatures, we're talking about fractions of a degree. And so the fact that we're more than one degree above the previous record is quite a large jump. It is a large jump, but let me also make one complaint about KPCC, one of our public radio stations out here in California. The teaser we used at the top of the show... It has not been this hot in California in 120 years. ...is misleading. The fact of the matter is we have only been keeping temperature records for 120 years... So it's not as if it was this hot 121 years ago. Am I right? Yeah, you're right. So I hate that when they say it hasn't been this hot in 120 years. That's when we started keeping records. They should make that clear. Just say it. But it's even worse than that globally. August 2014 is now officially the hottest August on record. That's according to NASA since record keeping began 134 years ago. I have been told that global warming has paused. I have been told that it's getting cooler. I have been told. I got to stop watching Fox. That's uh, all there is to it. Yes, you do. Meanwhile, that heat is turbocharging unprecedented extreme weather events. On Sunday, Hurricane Odile entered the record books as the the strongest hurricane to hit Cabo San Lucas in Baja, California. It hit as a Category 3 hurricane. Gusts blew down the glass doors in this hotel lobby, even with a couch blocking it. And this hotel shuttle van was flipped over like a toy. 11 inches of rain fell in just one hour. So far, however, no deaths have been reported in the popular tourist destination. But Odile ain't over yet. Folks in Arizona are bracing for more flash flooding from the remnants of Odile just one week after Pacific Hurricane Norbert gave Phoenix its wettest day in history. This hurricane is actually going to kick up a lot of moisture into the desert southwest, so expect 
expect flooding once again. Places like Tucson, Phoenix, Albuquerque, Las Vegas. Sadly, it looks like California won't be so lucky. We're now in our third year of historic drought here, and Odile is poised to bypass us. It's interesting that Fox News did not go wall-to-wall with this hurricane out in Cabo. I guess it doesn't go along with their narrative that, oh, we don't have many hurricanes anymore, unlike what scientists told us. Well, scientists told us there would either be more hurricanes or larger hurricanes, and we are definitely seeing larger hurricanes all across the globe. This one was, as you say, the first ever Category 3 to hit Cabo. And in the Pacific, it's partly due to a blob of record warm water that is extending all the way up to Alaska. A blob? Is is that a scientific term? (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm calling it. Marine biologists this week report new sightings of warm water fish in the Gulf of Alaska, where ocean temperatures are a full 5 degrees warmer than average for September. Finally, some good news. Vermont's largest city, Burlington, now uses 100% renewable electricity. A combination of hydroelectric, biomass, and wind gives them stable prices that are not fluctuating with spikes in the price of oil. Oh, I feel sorry for those people. Uh, How are they surviving the collapse of the economy in Burlington, Vermont? Apparently things are going quite well. Thank you very much. You mean it's not an apocalypse now that they've gotten rid of fossil fuels? No apocalypse necessary. I got to get better news sources. (laughs) Sorry, Steve Ducey. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website, if it hasn't melted, at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, find us and follow us on the Facebook and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. I really can't stay. But baby, it's hot outside. But baby, it's hot outside. It's really hot. That's like the funniest thing I could think of to put in there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's not really how the song goes. But (laughs) man, it is hot outside. I mean, like we've been saying, we were in the middle of this like record heat wave in Southern California that just like broke all these records. It's I think it was Santa Fe Dam hit 114 degrees. That's hot. can I can I cook eggs outside yet? Is that the rule? I don't know. I think that's the measurement, yes, um, of what can happen indeed when it gets this hot outside. And it's really harsh here in Los Angeles, and I know we complain about it, but, you know, a lot of Los Angeles infrastructure and buildings and apartments don't have air conditioning because you don't normally need it. So this has been one of those weeks where I think people are starting to get an idea of what we're looking at with, uh, with climate change and global warming, frankly, that, you know, there was one uh, study I said I saw that said, well, you know, this is kind of what would be a regular summer in California projected like for 2050, 2070, you know, somewhere in that range. They're expecting if we do absolutely nothing about about global warming, that we can expect this sort of extreme summer that we just had, this extreme heat wave to become the norm. I'm going to build a house underground, Desi. I don't think I can take that. <laughs> You're going to become a mole person? Yeah, pretty much. All right. Well, um, so really quick, uh, tomorrow on our next episode of the Green News Report, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the People's Climate March. Again, that's coming up on Sunday, September 21st. You can look up online at peoplesclimate.org to find a local rally or march near you. 
anywhere around the country, anywhere around the world. Um, it's going to be a huge march in New York City, and it's going to coincide with the United Nations Special Summit being held by Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to bring together world leaders to talk about and basically make pledges for what they're going to do to meet the um, to, to help cut emissions globally and in preparation for a final UN climate treaty that's going to be hammered out in 2015. So that's coming up tomorrow on the Green News Report, which you can get at greennews.bradblog.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Green News Report. Now I want to turn to Margot, <laughs> our super duper associate producer, who has Very been super duper. I know, who's been out and about basically traveling all over the Western Hemisphere, may I say? Sort so, of, yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, tell me, um, first of all, you used to be our associate producer here in the Glamorous World Radio. Now you've moved on to astrophysics. Yeah, well, I've been doing that for a little while now, I suppose. Yeah, I've, I was in Chile doing research there at Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory. I was studying some galaxy stuff there, you know. Galaxy stuff, is yeah, that the technical very, term? It's generally, that is the way we talk about it in astronomy. We just say stuff, galaxy <laughs> stuff, when we want to talk about that Physics thingies. Sort of physics thingies, thingamabobbers, doohickeys, you know. Now, then you also went up to Cornell for to do some more research. Yeah. And while you were in Cornell. String theory. Oh, string theory. Oh, that that's easy baby stuff. Come yeah. on. When are you gonna work on the hard things? I don't know. They don't they don't let me do that. <laughs> Not yet. No. So while you were in Cornell, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where you are currently an intern, Jet Propulsion Laboratory and NASA announced what new uh, experiments are going to be put on the next Mars rover. I believe that one of the experiments you've been working on was selected for that's, the next Mars rover. What's that, it called? Tell me more. That's right. It's called Sherlock. It's spelled S-H-E-R-L-O-C. So you guys can't spell either. No, we cannot okay. spell. We cannot spell. We can't name. do anything really technical. We're, we're not very bright. I don't know if you know. No, <laughs> so what is, what is Sherlock? Okay. Well, Sherlock is an instrument that, that's sort of been in the works for the last 10 years in the lab. And... It uses something very okay. Now this is really technical. Raman spectroscopy. Oh, I like Raman. That's delicious. Yeah, it's delicious, right? You know, it's you put in the microwave, you know, heat it up. Okay, that's not what you're working on, obviously. No, obviously not. But actually, what it is is basically we're just using light to analyze uh, compounds or a substance. You know, we we want to. One of the important things about what we're doing on Mars is that we're trying to understand habitability. We really want to know if there ever was life on Mars. It's hard for us to say that there was actually any life, that there's actually any life now, but maybe there was life four billion years ago. So that's what we're doing with this instrument. We can look at minerals, we can look for organics, and we're using light to do the analysis. So that's basically what Sherlock does. Fabulous. When does it take off? 2020. Awesome. Okay. Well, I know we're running out of time here, so really quick, I just want to thank Margot Paez, our super duper associate producer, thank G, you, our soundboard op, our guests, Matthew Heberger of the Pacific Institute at PacInst.org, David Atkins, campaign manager for Measure P. Thank you so much for tuning in. We got to go. Uh, Desi in for Brad Friedman. He'll be back next week on the Bradcast. Good night, America. America.